Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Hey, it's the Tom Hartman Podcast brought to you by Cameron Hughes Wine. There's a little secret that most people don't know about the highest quality wineries in the United States and how they work. They'll say, you know, as they start their year, okay, we're going to bottle, say, 5,000 bottles of wine this year. And so they overproduce for that, produce enough for maybe 6,000 bottles of wine. But, you know, they've, they've sold 5,000, they're ready to get 5,000 out. And so that's basically all they do under their own label. And then when they're done, they've got casks of wine left over that haven't been bottled. Cameron Hughes contracts with some of the very best vineyards in America to take that essentially surplus wine. I mean, you know, it's the exact same wine you would buy in a bottle for 50, 60, 100. Uh, one of the Cameron Hughes wines I had last week, the retail price, if you knew who the brand was, was over $150 a bottle. Cameron Hughes buys that in bulk, bottles it, puts just a simple number. Here it is, lot 506 or lot 622. Simple number on it. And you get some of the most spectacular wines at huge discounts off what you would normally pay. Cameron Hughes has been doing this since 2001, seeking out high-end wine from around the world and selling it online direct to his customers. This is not just American wines. Earning Cameron Hughes Wine the number one wine brand online. It's just extraordinary stuff. Uh, I recently sampled Lot 609. This is a Cabernet Sauvignon. It was insane. It was so good. It was bold. It was rich. It had the, the black fruit and red licorice and crushed red rock. All these, these extraordinary tastes, juicy and ripe on the palate. You got to check this out. Go to chwine.com slash Tom, T-H-O-M. C-H as in Cameron Hughes. That's his name. He, the guy who started the company and runs it. I've talked with him. He's a great guy and he's doing amazing stuff chwine.com slash t-h-o-m or text the word wine w-i-n-e text the word wine to 511-511 and you'll get free shipping with your minimum three bottle order so text wine to 511-511 cameron hughes wine exceptional value extraordinary wine now enjoy the podcast This is the Tom Hartman Program. Greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth, and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. Tom Hartman here with you. We've got a lot coming up on the program today. Chauncey DeVega is going to be with us in just a moment. Uh, we're asking the question, how do we prepare for the end of the Trump presidency, among other things? Rick Wilson will be with us. He's got a new book out called Everything Trump touches dies. Yes, he's a Republican. And Paul Levy's going to drop by. Quantum physics and wetico. But let's start out with Chauncey DeVega. Chauncey, uh, Chauncey is the political essayist and commentator, contributor with Salon. He's got a new piece up on Salon, in fact, about uh, Nazism and, uh, and Trumpism. Uh, he's also the host of the Chauncey DeVega Show podcast. Uh, his website, Chauncey DeVega, D-E-V-E-G-A dot com. And you can tweet him at Chauncey DeVega. Chauncey, welcome back to the program. Always a pleasure to have you. It's, to be here. <laughs> yeah, it's great to have you with us. Um, I wanted to start with this piece that, that you wrote, uh, Are White People Ready to Bail on Democracy? These researchers say the danger is real. Can, can you set that up for us, please? Well, we know, looking at American history, that racism is a, is a dagger of sorts at the heart of American democracy. And again, 
from Trump's hate rallies to his overt racist and nativist speech, we're actually starting to get a lot of good empirical data. And one of the things we're learning, again, from political scientists, sociologists, and others, is that Trump voters and white Americans who are racially resentful in general are much more likely to believe that we should cancel elections, that we should suppress the, um, that we should restrict that, we should restrict the free press, that if Donald Trump basically ordered a rollback of democracy, that they would go along with it. And why is that? because of social dominance behavior and anxiety about America's changing demographics. So unfortunately, we have too many white Americans who are willing to make a bargain, basically saying, you know what, it's a zero-sum game. And if we can't run the show to American democracy, then it can be damned. Yeah. And, and so what do we do with that? I mean, how, 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 actually, let me, let me uh, you know, Kamala Harris over the weekend talked about, um, I'm not afraid of identity politics. Uh, James Baldwin was asked about this. Jeez, uh, I don't, I don't, I don't know the year, but probably back in the '60s. And here is what he had to say. I'd just love to get your take on his comments too. He was uh, first asked by a uh, by a commentator. We're not hearing any audio here, Nate or Sean. I don't know who's got the audio. Okay. Uh, anyway, Chauncey, we'll we'll just continue here. Um, so. Uh, what do we do with this? I mean, how, how, do you, how do we address white people about this issue? Well, I mean, as you and I have talked about repeatedly, we need to state the facts plainly. And the obvious fact is that America has only been a democracy on paper for 50 years, and that's since the end of the civil rights movement, at least formally in terms of the popular imagination. So in terms of thinking about history, history can move forward, but in terms of American democracy, it's been a very, very slow march, and we can lose the little democracy that we have very quickly. So the easy answer would be, you know, in a perfect world, we fix our educational system. We make sure that we have a true we-the-people democracy. We work to create multiracial, cross-class alliances at every level of American life. But if someone were to give me the big bucks and say, hey, Chauncey, man, what would you tell the Democrats to do in terms of strategy? What would you tell liberals and progressives? I'd say stop wasting your time trying to win over Trump voters. We Mm. have a ton of data, again, showing us that these folks are authoritarian, that they are resistant to cosmopolitanism. They want to live in the past and not the present. And, you know, I've spoken to some of the leading experts on Trumpism. I go out and instead of, you know, working with conjecture like some of the talking heads do, I want to try to figure out what we know empirically. And what I'm seeing over the years of studying Trump and Trumpism and working on my own book is that Trump voters cannot be reached. We need to work on those Americans who are on the fence and those other Americans who simply didn't vote. These Trump cultists are a lost cause, and we need to stop worrying about them. Yeah, I'm inclined to agree with you. Um, Yesterday, there's a a, a documentary. uh, It's called Documenting Hate, Charlottesville. It's going to premiere on uh, PBS on the 7th, which is tomorrow, and on your local public broadcasting TV station. And in that documentary, they're making the case that the Charlottesville, there's about 500 of these right-wing white supremacist protesters in Charlottesville, and that that group kind of split into three. And one of those three groups is out still protesting out in public. We saw this in Portland this, this weekend. Another part of that group, and uh, you know, the, I, I don't know the percentages here, but another part of that group has gone into uh, more of kind of a Koch brothers mode, for lack of a better way to describe it, um, you know, uh, recruiting on college campuses, uh, trying to get inside political parties, uh, you know, be, uh, becoming political uh, or uh, Republican uh, campaign chairman or, uh, you know, uh, within the Republican Party anyway. And a third group has split off and said, we're going to start killing people and we're going to do it quietly, essentially. And, and uh, you know, we're not trying to be the, uh, uh, the weather underground. We're not, you know, trying to be famous. We're just going to start killing people. And yesterday, at 3 o'clock in the morning yesterday in Madison, Wisconsin, uh, the progressive radio station there, WRT, somebody walked in and shot a guy. And, uh, you know, he's, he's, he's still alive, but he was, he was shot. Um, what does all this, t- how does all this inform you? And, and, and how would you tie this back to your current piece in Salon about uh, how, the, how the Nazis dealt with this and how we should be dealing with it? Well, I think, again, we always need to speak truth to power, and we've had too many folks in the mainstream corporate news media, because they've given Trump $5 billion in free advertising, who are willing to still normalize this man. So the first thing we need to understand is when Trump calls the news media, journalists and reporters, enemies of the people, well, that's Stalinist rhetoric that, again, is part of a trend we've seen over the decades with right-wing Republicans and others using eliminationist rhetoric against Democrats, liberals, non-whites, immigrants, and others. So we need to, again, check that box off. 
And thinking about my piece today, again, saying, you know what, it's both reasonable and appropriate to compare Donald Trump and Trumpism to Hitler and Nazism, you don't want to wait until it's too late. Because once it's too late, there's nothing that can be done. We have all these folks wringing their hands saying, well, is Trump like Hitler? Oh, is that a fair historical analogy? The man is certainly a fascist. He's certainly a racial authoritarian. We have a ton of data about that. And he certainly is, again, holding a dagger at the heart of American democracy. And with Trump and his voters and his supporters, if you look at these hate rallies, does any reasonable person have any doubt in their mind that if Trump again said go out and start killing people, go out and start attacking journalists, which he has basically said that they wouldn't do it? And again, thinking about this moment and this intermediate people moment, and I mean, that's really important research, thinking about how these right-wing hate groups have splintered. We need to, again, stop wringing our hands. Again, the mainstream corporate news media types, the New York Times today had a piece basically trying to whitewash the Republican Party's association with Nazism. There's a reason that David Duke and other neo-Nazis, Richard Spencer and white supremacists, are attracted to the Republican Party. Because they agree with them. And the Republicans, for the most part, going back to the Southern strategy, agree with them as well. They're just upset about the style and the presentation. And that goes all the way up to Trump. Yeah. Yeah. Where do you where do you where do you see this going, Chauncey? And what's what's your biggest concern? Well, I don't think this ends well. As I said, I've spoken to many historians and others about this moment. Um, To some, this will sound dramatic, but I don't see this ending without some sort of civil unrest quite frankly. And it, now the question then becomes, what is the scale? We've already seen killings and murders. We saw that in Charlottesville. We saw that in Portland. And another important uh, issue we have to talk about with the far right, who are increasingly the center of the Republican Party, because the Republican Party is embracing these people's strategies, they're embracing their policies. Again, there's a huge overlap in the Venn diagram, is we need to have an honest conversation about how America's police are infiltrated and allying with these white supremacists and neo-Nazis. I can't make this as an absolute assertion. This is uh, you know, more in the category of somebody told me the police and the and the and the the right wingers here in portland had actually uh, communicated and you know had a kind of a pact don't worry everything's going to be good and thus the you know the guy who got shot in the head he had a helmet on with a with a tear gas canister canister was one of the left-wing protesters as opposed to one of the right-wing guys and uh, this kind of stuff going on this is what you're saying is happening all over the country Oh, yes, and it's, it's remarkably underreported. I mean, I think there's another thing that's going to come out once social demographers start looking at the data. I think we have seen a remarkable rise in interpersonal violence related to Trump's campaign and presidency. And I think also it's going to come out, again, underreported because there's always a lag, that once we get the data from the FBI and local police who, again, think about how police report data, some of that data is remarkably unreliable, and they try to sit on it, just like they do with violence um, where police are killing innocent people on the street. I think you're going to see a lot of murders and assaults by Trumpsters and their, their allies these neo-Nazis and white supremacists against black and brown folks, immigrants, and others. And we've already seen the murders. And going back to your point about the police in Portland, another huge underreported story, they had another, they're going to have another anniversary of the Charlottesville um, white supremacist hate festival, that horrible riot that killed Heather Hare in D.C., and they were actually going to have separate trains for Kluxers, white supremacists, and neo-Nazis. Those are our tax dollars. And thank God the brothers and sisters in the local transit union in D.C. dropped a dime on this. They want to use state and public money to protect these fascists. Well, you know, the, the, the first piece I read on that was not that they were trying to do it to protect them, but rather to segregate them so that there wouldn't be violence in, in, the, in the metro system in Washington, D.C. Well, I think the, 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 the practical function of that is basically that we're spending public monies to protect these folks, right? right. And I mean, it's a double yeah. insult in a lot of ways, because who's instigating the violence? Who has the guns? We saw that in Portland. It's these white supremacists and neo-Nazis. They're yeah. the ones who are escalating the violence. And to have black and brown folks, the majority of whom work in the transit uh, system down there in D.C., to have to sit there and escort and use public money to protect these bigots, it's abominable. But again, it's part of a pattern where this hate is being normalized. Yeah. And, and we're also seeing um, things like, you know, the, the, the murder of Neil Wilson, for example, uh, underreported under. I mean, you know, it's it's spurred some protests and whatnot, but um, it's not the, the kind of national story you would expect um, at, at the same time that. You know, the, the, for example, the gun violence in Chicago, where you live, uh, has been heavily reported. I think this is it's the right wing's favorite, uh, you know, uh, chant, I guess. Um, thoughts on those? Well, I mean, that's just part of a, a pattern, right? So look at black and brown folks and say, look, look, look at Chicago and use all sorts of racial slurs. Go to Stormfront, go to Fox News comment sections. But then when you flip the script and say, OK, we have a problem across the country with gun violence. And never mind where these guns are coming from, Indiana. Let's talk about right. the violence. In this country, mass shootings, again, disproportionately committed by white men, 
especially right white wing Trump supporters. I mean, those are huge underreported stories where you look at the horrible massacres at these schools the last few. A lot of these men had connections, these young teens and boys. They were advocates of Donald Trump. They were his supporters. So, I mean, that's just a lazy, lazy, lazy deflection to hide the fact that a lot of these Trump voters, again, thinking back to the Republican Party, where conservatism and racism is now one and the same thing, that they don't want to speak the truth about the real social dynamics of this country. Yeah, and the, and the conservatives who don't want to buy into this are left just basically being corporatists. Chauncey DeVega, chaunceydevega.com. Thank you, Chauncey. Always a pleasure. Great talking with you. Hey, it's the Tom Hartman Podcast brought to you by Cameron Hughes Wine. There's a little secret that most people don't know about the highest quality wineries in the United States and how they work. They'll say, you know, as they start their year, okay, we're going to bottle, say, 5,000 bottles of wine this year. And so they overproduce for that, produce enough for maybe 6,000 bottles of wine. But, you know, they've, they've sold 5,000, they're ready to get 5,000 out. And so that's basically all they do under their own label. And then when they're done, they've got casks of wine left over that haven't been bottled. Cameron Hughes contracts with some of the very best vineyards in America to take that essentially surplus wine. I mean, you know, it's the exact same wine you would buy in a bottle for 50, 60, 100. Uh, one of the Cameron Hughes wines I had last week, the retail price, if you knew who the brand was, was over $150 a bottle. Cameron Hughes buys that in bulk, bottles it, puts just a simple number. Here it is, lot 546 or lot 622. Simple number on it. And you get some of the most spectacular wines at huge discounts off what you would normally pay. Cameron Hughes has been doing this since 2001, seeking out high-end wine from around the world and selling it online direct to his customers. This is not just American wines. Earning Cameron Hughes Wine the number one wine brand online. It's just extraordinary stuff. Uh, I recently sampled Lot 609. This is a Cabernet Sauvignon. It was insane. It was so good. It was bold. It was rich. It had... The, the black fruit and red licorice and crushed red rock, all these, these extraordinary tastes, juicy and ripe on the palate. You got to check this out. Go to chwine.com slash Tom, T-H-O-M. C-H as in Cameron Hughes, that's his name, the guy who started the company and runs it. I've talked with him. He's a great guy and he's doing amazing stuff. chwine.com slash T-H-O-M. Or text the word wine, W-I-N-E, text the word wine to 511-511. And you'll get free shipping with your minimum three-bottle order. So text WINE to 511-511. Cameron Hughes Wine. Exceptional value. Extraordinary wine. Now enjoy the podcast. Tom Harvin here with you. And uh, Jared, Downington, Pennsylvania. Hey, Jared, what's on your mind today? Hello, Tom. I want to talk about the concept of, quote, free speech and deplatforming. A couple hours ago, Alex Jones's uh, YouTube Facebook, Spotify, and other social media outlets were right. uh, permanently banned, too. and they've been permanently banned and removed from the air. And I'm saying I think this is a really good thing for our democracy because Alex Jones is effectively a form of cancer. He has been. I would argue, actually, that the reason we have Trump is because of Alex Jones, namely that they were the ones prior to even Trump running. He was the one talking about, you know, uh, we should be friendly with Russia. Uh, we should be subservient to Russia, along with Michael Savage, who were the ones who basically created uh, Donald Trump using this racist uh, rhetoric, like, you know, these uh, Central Americans are coming over the border. Right. Well, they, were, they like weren't that. alone in that, Jared. I mean, you know, right-wing hate radio, pretty much right across the spectrum, got on the Trump train really early. And I would say help but, ride him to the pri to the victory in the primaries, along with CBS, ABC, NBC, CNN, and MSNBC, and Fox, obviously. But all the other networks, they gave him but, $2 billion worth of free publicity during the primaries and during the general election. But has any Republican ever cultivated the conspiracy theory vote before, prior to Trump? mobilizing yeah. millions of these Alex Jones psychopaths? I don't know. If you go back to the 70s, the assassination of Allen Berg, I mean, there's, there's possible, but I think it's extremely unlikely. I don't know what we do with that, other than say, if you're a Nazi and you've got a radio or TV show or a conspiracy, many platforms don't want you on there. You know, Facebook doesn't want you on there, Twitter doesn't want you on there, et cetera. But I don't think that it's necessarily because Alex Jones is like a right winger or even necessarily a Nazi, although I think Nazi is probably beyond the pale. 
but it's that he's constantly or he has a history of saying things that aren't supported by the evidence. By saying them, he is putting people's lives at risk, particularly when he went after the Newtown families and whatnot. So that's a strong argument to deplatform somebody. You are actually putting people's lives at risk. I stand behind everything I say on this program. And, and you know, somebody calls and says, you know, you got that story about so-and-so or such-and-such wrong. I'll put them on the air. I'll, you know, I'll, we'll correct ourselves when, we, when we're wrong. I want people who are listening to this program, who are watching this program, to feel a high level of confidence that what I'm telling them is the truth. I don't think that that's what Alex Jones does. In fact, he's characterized himself. There's a book uh, that we had the author of it on maybe 10 years ago that has a chapter in it about Alex Jones. The guy you know, followed Alex Jones around for a few months as he was writing this book about all these different conspiracy theorists. And Alex Jones was saying, uh, you know, no, I'm just a, a performer. This is just theater. He's not so much saying that anymore. But if you're taking it as performance or if you're taking it as, you know, crackpot stuff, it, it kind of doesn't matter if it's, if he's, if he's also claiming that it's news and it's fact, and it's not, then that's a good reason not, you know, to deplatform him, to, to take him off. Am I making sense here, Jared? Uh, yes. I'm saying do but it based I, on whether it's true or not and whether it's dangerous or not, not based on whether it's left or right or however he's trying to position himself ideologically. Because I don't think he's, I don't think he's that much of an ideologue. I think he's. You know, I think he's an authoritarian who's looking, and a conspiracy theorist who's looking for an audience. And, and the fact that we're talking about him is giving him more of an audience, which is why I generally don't yeah. talk about Alex Jones. I think it is good that we at least call these people out who are doing this. A lot of this stuff that Trump ran on, all this conspiracy theory garbage and the QAnon stuff, all this originally came from Alex Jones's site. And I also believe that QAnon is a Trump official. Now, let me give you some information on QAnon that's just that'll blow your mind. Uh, this is uh, Brian Broderick is a reporter over at BuzzFeed News, and he tracked down. Uh, there was a novel called Q that was published in the 1990s. It was written by three Italian leftists, Roberto Bui, Giovanni Catabria and Federico Guglielmi, um, under the name of Luther Blissett. And this novel, in this novel Q, uh, this character who is inside the International Monetary Fund is dropping breadcrumbs and, you know, helping to reveal this international conspiracy. And it was a huge hit among the anarchist anti-globalization movement in the late 90s. And uh, he's of the opinion, uh, the, the, these three writers, they told this reporter, quote, dispatches signed Q allegedly coming from some dark meanders of top state power, are exactly like the dispatches in our book. So it looks like this was a left-wing punking prank against the, you know, to the right-wingers, and the right-wingers grabbed it and said, oh, yeah, okay, this must be true. And the danger now is that the right-wingers, no matter, you know, even when you come out and tell them, hey, it's a, it's a left-wing joke that you fell for, they're, they're not going to believe it. And, you know, we're, <laughs> that's going to... That's going to take us down. Jared, I need to move along, but thank you for the call. It's uh, always good to hear from you. On the line with us is the author of the new book, Everything Trump Touches Dies. The subtitle of Republican Strategist Gets Real About the Worst President Ever. It's by Rick Wilson. Rick Wilson is a Republican strategist, and uh, his, his Twitter feed is the Rick Wilson. Rick, do you have a website? I don't see it here. Uh, it's rickwilson.com. Say it again. TheRickWilson.com. TheRickWilson.com. Cool. Uh, Rick, you're a Republican strategist and, you know, have been involved in Republican campaigns for years and years. You know the Republican Party. Donald Trump tweeted yesterday that uh, it's just a normal thing to reach out to a foreign government and ask them for help to take down your adversary in a political campaign. Is that true? You know, Tom, I've been involved in Republican politics for 30 years, and there's there are a few things I've never done, and one of them is to reach out to a hostile foreign powers representatives to ask them for dirt on, a, on an opponent. Um, because I don't think I can think of anyone, Republican or Democrat, in my history in, in politics, as I said, for almost 30 years now, who would do that? It, it's, just, it's unthinkable. So, of course, that's what the Trump people did. Because it was unthinkable, they decided to go ahead and do it. So here's the, the weird coincidence, Rick. Uh, on this day in 1974, or yesterday, August 5th, on August 5th, 1974, Richard Nixon, under orders from the Supreme Court, released the White House tapes, which led to yep. the end of his presidency a few months later. 
Um, on that same day, yesterday, Donald Trump released the apparently truth about this meeting that his son and, and Jared Kushner and others had with these Russian lawyers and Russian representatives of Russian oligarchs in Trump Tower. Um, do you think that this is the end of the Trump presidency? I, I, I've heard from uh, two sources now that the White House right now is in lockdown, that Trump's travel plans uh, have been canceled, essentially, that Sarah Huckabee Sanders is not going to be holding a press conference today. I mean, all this may change. It's a very fluid situation. Um, but apparently there's like major freakout going on in the White House. Well, Tom, if you were in the White House, I think you'd be freaked out, too. Yeah. I mean, he has exposed his own son to legal jeopardy. He, he, I mean, it, that tweet will go down in history as one of these like, tweets heard around the world because it was so it, it had so many levels of bad in it and had so many downside consequences to it that I think we're going to look back and say that was a real inflection point where he, he opened himself up and opened his son up to even greater legal pressure. A lot of this was stuff that Robert Mueller already knew. But thanks for the confirmation, Don. You know, this is a guy who who truly doesn't understand the, the scope of the peril he is in. And and so we're ending up in a situation, in my view, that that while this may not be the end, this certainly opened up a gigantic chest wound um, of, in the Trump administration. And the legal vulnerability they had all along has now been enhanced. So, you know, it's one of the things I talk about in the book. This is a guy who thinks he is such a a genius about negotiation and about the world. And he's lived in this bubble all along of New York, you know, sort of tabloid BS. Right. And now that he's hitting the wall of reality and that part of that wall is in Robert Mueller, he's having a really bad time. Yeah, it seems. It will take 17 Republicans in the United States Senate to remove Donald Trump from office. Uh, that was not a big lift during the Nixon administration when the Republicans, who were big supporters of Richard Nixon just six months earlier, realized how corrupt Nixon was and how crazy he was in some ways. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. Do you think that this tweet is enough to have pushed him over the top with some number of Republicans in the Senate and possibly 17, or is it going to take a lot more than this? I think it's actually going to still take more than this, Tom, because this is a party that is, that is basically it lives in terror of Donald Trump. Mm. He is in many ways a political terrorist for Republican elected officials. They, they, they live in mortal fear that he is going to tweet about them or talk about them in a bad way, because the, the moment that happens, then come the death threats and the craziness and the, and the Fox News coverage about them, and their lives turn you know, upside down. So he still has a lot of them very much intimidated. Yeah. Um, but I will say this. I talked to a member of the Senate a couple days ago. We were having a conversation, and he said, you know, here's a guy who's been publicly supportive, privately skeptical, as many of them are. Um, and he said, you know, he goes, I read what you said about Nixon. And, you know, we stood up there as Republicans in 73 and said it's a witch hunt. It's the liberal media. And in 74, we lost 49 House seats and eight Senate seats. Yep. And corruption kills and corruption kills. And, and that's another thing I've seen in my in my long career in politics is that the years where you're perceived to be the corrupt party, right or wrong. You know, in 94, the Democrats, the House bank scandal hurt them terribly with average voters. In 2006, Abramoff and Mark Foley hurt Republicans terribly in the in, in, in 2006 elections. And, and so that perception, if it becomes that this is the party covering for a corrupt president who is in bed with a Russian with with Russian government uh, officials, um, it, I think it could lead downstream to downstream consequences that really hurt a lot of the elected uh, folks who think they can get away with it. We're talking to uh, Republican strategist Rick Wilson, his new book, Everything Trump, uh, Everything Trump Touches Dies. Um, Rick, let's talk character for a minute. Uh, Michael Flynn, uh, regardless of what you may think of him and his behavior, um, he and, had had this consulting company that his son was involved with. And the consulting mm -hmm. company apparently committed crimes that involved collusion with the Russians and the Republican Party and, the, and you know, being in the White House and all this kind of stuff. And when Robert Mueller started sniffing around his son, Michael Flynn Jr., mm -hmm. Michael Flynn came out and said to Mueller, according to you know, numerous press reports, uh, if you're going to take my son down, this is where I draw the line. I will turn myself in. I will confess to whatever you want. I'll turn state's evidence. Just leave my boy alone. Donald Trump, on the other hand, says, oh, you've got some dirt on my son? Well, here, here's the real evidence. Put him in jail. By the way, I knew nothing about it. What does that tell us about these two men? 
Well, look, I, I mean, Michael Flynn at least proved that for all of his terrible judgment and his and his flirtations with the Russians, that at least there's some tiny scrap of honor about his family left inside of him. And and, and you know, the best case scenario you can make for that tweet from Donald Trump is that he's just not that bright. And he yeah. thought he was going to get his son out of trouble, and he got him into it. But the, the darkest interpretation is that this is a guy who hates everybody and, and who, who will do anything to preserve his own position and freedom and power and, and was willing to put his son under the wheels of the bus. That's the dark interpretation. And, you know, and, and Trump tends to lend himself to, to the darker interpretations as a general rule. Um, but this, this was clearly something that that he will regret no matter what. I mean, this is going to make for an awkward family Thanksgiving dinner. Yeah, to say the very least. It seems to me that um, there's probably two major possibilities here with regard to this tweet by Trump. One is that he somehow thought that if he could just put it out there, that that would mean that it wasn't, you know, a conspiracy or a crime. It wasn't a cover up any longer. It's out in the public domain. So it's all good now. Uh, that kind of thing that he just was right. <laughs> fundamentally uninformed about the law. OK, that's one possibility. The other possibility is that he doesn't give a rat's ass about the law, that he really and truly believes he's above the law. And if he can just convince enough Americans that they should side with him, that they will that they will prevent him from being impeached. They will prevent the courts from doing their job. They'll, they'll you know, or even that he thinks that at some point he needs to stop the law, essentially, and just flip us into an authoritarian dictatorship. Now, that's that, I think that's like one of the most the, one of the darkest interpretations, to use your phrase. What are your thoughts on that polarity? You know, I- Look, I, I think there's that Venn diagram, those three circles of that Venn di- diagram could all overlap. Yeah. He could definitely believe the wrong things about the, the, the actual statutory impact of his behavior and his, and his confessions. He could definitely believe that, that he may have done something illegal and can get away with it if he just browbeats people hard enough and rants long enough. And he could definitely believe that, you know, as a president, he is unconstrained by the law. And, and you know, I think it's pretty clear that Donald Trump is, to say the least, authoritarian curious. Yeah. He well, is this a man is... who you know loves loves the Putin, loves the strong men of the world, the Dutertes and the Kims and the and the Zs of the world, and and he has a sense of of sort of machismo and swagger that you know his his fans may love, but that it's a sense of uh, of a different kind of American presidential leadership that that leads to a very dark place when it's been tried in, in millions of other or hundreds of other cases around the world over time. And, and I think that it's a, a great danger to our democracy and, and to our republic if we start letting a president of any party get away with treating the rule of law like it's optional. Yeah. And I think that's one of the most dangerous things about Trump is, is, this, is that the law means nothing if it, if it inconveniences me politically. It's right. a bad precedent. We're talking to Republican strategist Rick Wilson, his new book, Everything Trump Touches Dies. Uh, Rick, last question. Um, we, you know, typically most of the listeners to my program are Democrats, I'm guessing, or you know, progressives in general. But there are a lot of Republicans who listen and a lot of them call in and, and uh, you know, sometimes agree, sometimes disagree. What would you say to those people who have been Republicans for 30 years like you who uh, are not sure what to do now? Well, I, I would say this, is that there are a lot of principles in the Republican Party's tradition that, that we need to get back to. And, and some of those principles had, had gotten a little bit lost even before Trump, but the adherence to the rule of law, the actual adherence to the Constitution in, in, in ways that, that sometimes are inconvenient for parts of the Republican base, to return to a, a real adherence to the rule of law. Rick Wilson, his book, Everything Trump Touches, Dies. Thanks so much for being with us, Rick. Thank you, Tom. Good talking with you. Welcome back. There, you know, there's a couple of news stories here that I just wanted to bring to your attention, and then I'll get back to your calls. This in today's New York Times, there's a couple of these from today's New York Times that are just shocking, and they're really, they're really worthy of our paying attention to. The first is that the American stock market is shrinking. Yes, that's the headline, an article by Jeff Sommer, and it's kind of worked its way up to one of the most forwarded stories. Uh, He writes, the American stock market has been shrinking. The market is half the size of its mid-1990s peak and 25% smaller than it was in 1976. 
Now, you hear me on this program talking all the time about corporate consolidation. Well, media consolidation is a dimension of that. Corporate consolidation, uh, these giant conglomerates basically taking all the money, and it's harder and harder. Speaking as a guy who has started seven businesses in his life, small businesses, every one of them, started them all from scratch, it has reached the point now where it is damn hard to start a business in America. Uh, be, why? Because these giant companies, you know, we're no, Reagan stopped enforcing the Sherman a Antitrust Act in 1982. We are no longer enforcing this law. And therefore, companies are getting bigger and bigger and bigger and more and more powerful. And in the process, wiping out their small competitors. In the mid-1990s, there were 8,000 publicly traded companies available in the United States. So if you wanted to invest in a company, you had 8,000 to choose from. Today, or by 2016, there were only 3,600 Today, there's fewer than that. And here's where it gets really shocking. Profits. In 2015, the last year that we've got all the numbers for, the top 200 companies in America by earnings accounted for all of the profits in the stock market. Let me repeat that. 200 companies, the top 200 companies accounted for all of the profits on the stock market. And the remaining 3,000 281 public listed companies all lost money. That's breathtaking. Meanwhile, older Americans, people over 65 years old, are declaring bankruptcy at rates we have never seen before. This is where we were in 1933, 34, 35, when finally, I guess it was 1935, that uh, FDR rolled out Social Security. And one of the reasons he rolled out Social Security is that, you know, older people were literally dying of malnutrition-associated illnesses, dying of cold in the winter, dying of heat stroke in the summer. Poverty was widespread among people over 65. The rate of, uh, this from today's New York Times, Tara Siegel-Bernard writing, too little, too late, bankruptcy booms among older Americans. The rate of people 65 and older filing for bankruptcy is three times what it was in 1991. That's a 300% increase. Why? Reaganomics. We've gone from 2% in 1999 of people filing for bankruptcy being over 65 to 12.2% now. In fact, they say the aging of the baby boom generation can't explain that increase. So what does explain it? Professor Thorne says the only explanation that makes any sense are structural shifts. What do structural shifts mean? Well, it's very straightforward. Uh, you know, people can no longer afford their health care. People don't have the kind of income that they had. From you know, Social Security doesn't pay as much as it used to, and now it's taxed thanks to thanks to Ronnie Reagan. And they don't have, and they've got 401ks instead of instead of pensions. So people are retiring with less money. They have access to less money. It's harder and harder for them to get resources, and the costs of healthcare have exploded, which is one of the disproportionately high costs for elderly people. We're back where we were in the 30s. I mean, we're back where we were in the 30s with the Dust Bowl, and now we're back with, in the 30s with, with uh, older people being destroyed. This is, this is terrible stuff. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. And this is why we need to look back to FDR and LBJ's Great Society and say that's the Democratic Party, and we're going to re reinvigorate and reinvent it. Marriott. Marriott? In Littleton, Colorado? Um, I have a couple of questions. Well, a question, you know, you mentioned DACA, and that's a judge, something to be done about that. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm also wondering about the, these 572 children also that are in limbo that may not be eligible to, you know, to be reunited or, you know, with their parents. What does he expect to do with these children? I mean, was he going to give them citizenship then? Well, you know, if they aren't reunited, what's going to happen to these kids? I don't. I don't think they'd even thought it out that far. I thought that I think that, that you know Stephen Miller, the, this uh, the, you know white nationalist racist in the White House who's driving this policy, and in all probability came up with this idea, thought, oh, this will be something that'll you know get the white people cranked, and this is something that uh, you know will will be a you know a great little moment for us, and this is something that'll make people feel like you know we're fighting you know the the white people who are concerned about brown people coming from south of the border, make them feel like we're fighting for they're fighting for us, we're fighting for them. And I don't think that they actually thought about what do we do with these children once we take them away from their parents. I think they just kind of had this thing in their mind that there's this giant foster care system and an adoption system that they'll just kind of merge into and vanish. Which, by the way, is what seems to have happened with several hundred of these kids. Okay, well, I appreciate your, your response. Thank you. Thanks, thanks so much Thank for the you. call. It's great to hear from you. I appreciate Bye -bye. it. Good talking with you. 
you'll recall a week or so ago, we had this conversation with Greg Palast about how the, uh, the guy, Brian Kemp, in Georgia, who is running for governor, was the Secretary of State. And as Secretary of State, well, actually, he is the Secretary of State, I guess. Uh, but last year, in 2017 alone, we don't know what he's done this year, in the state of Georgia, he removed the names of 591,548 voters from the voting rolls in Georgia. Just took them off the rolls. And, you know, I've been saying for a long time, I am of the opinion that the red shift that we're experiencing in the United States, that is the difference between what people tell exit pollsters when they leave the, the, the polling place and about who they voted for and what the electronic voting machines say they voted for. Uh, you know, for a long time, I thought that most all of this could be accounted for by the machines being hacked. I mean, that was the only thing I could come up with. But now with these huge voter purges, I think that probably the largest percentage of this is actually the voter purge. That people show up to vote and they don't understand, they don't know that a provisional ballot is not counted. So you go in to vote and you say, hi, you know, I'm Tom Hartman, I'm here to vote. And, they, and, the, and the polling worker looks at you and says, uh, well, I don't see your name here on the ballot or, or on the you know, list, on the, on the registered voters list. And so I said, well, geez, what do I do? I mean, here's my voter registration card. Here's my ID. Here's, you know, everything you want. And they say, well, we'll give you a, hey, hey, uh, George, bring over a provisional ballot, would you? Or bring over a provisional ballot, would you, for, for Tom here? And so I get this provisional ballot, and I have no idea what provisional means. I think, oh, that's the ballot you give people who aren't registered to vote or who had a glitch. But I still get to vote. Isn't that cool? And so I get this ballot, and I go through, and I mark it all up, and I say, okay, here's my ballot. And they say, thank you very much. You know, put it in the box, and off you go. And I walk out thinking that I voted, when in fact I didn't, because the vast majority of Americans don't know that provisional ballots aren't counted. And so I walk out of the polling place, and there's the exit pollster who is saying, hey, how'd you vote, Tom? And I say, oh, I voted for so-and-so and such-and-such. And, such. and they write it all down. And then when the machines are tabulating the votes at the end of the day, my vote doesn't get counted because it's a provisional ballot. And provisional ballots are only counted many days later if I go down to the Secretary of State's office and prove that I am who I am and reinstate me on the, on the rolls and find that provisional ballot. And basically, bottom line is, Fewer than 1% of them have ever actually get counted, period. And so then when the exit polls come out versus the voting numbers, well, in Missouri, for example, is a 5.4% redshift. 5% of all the Democratic voters in Missouri thought they voted for a Democrat, but their vote didn't get counted. In New Jersey, it's 4.2%. Chris Christie's state. In Utah, it's 2.8%. In Maine, it's 3%. In Ohio, it's 4.5%. And Ohio is the state that went to the Supreme Court and said, we want to continue removing people from the voting rolls. And we've got this system to do it. If they didn't vote in the last election, then we send them a postcard. If they don't send the postcard back, then we remove them from the voting rolls. And so, you know, you've got midterms in there. And so that's the last election, right, that you didn't vote in. And so, you know, you get nailed. And, you know, this is, and, and who, who returns postcards, right? I mean, you know, you think, what, is this a scam? Is this some kind of, I mean, we've all gotten this stuff in the mail that looks like official notice, right? From the uh, National Information Clearinghouse Incorporated. But it looks like a government document. And it's like, you know, census information or something like that on the outside. And then you open it up and it's like, when you fill out your census form, will you be, you know, or something like, and most of us figure out this, eh, this is a scam, right? This is some organization that's trying to, or some company basically that's trying to get me to respond. They want to know that I'm here. They want to, so they can sell me something. They can hustle me for something. And so you get a postcard and, the, and they, the states that don't want you to respond, and particularly if they're selectively mailing these postcards into, into neighborhoods of, you know, of elderly people, college students and people of color and, uh, you know, and, and, and cities that tend to vote Democratic, like, you know, downtown Portland, regardless of uh, ethnicity. When they do this, some of these states actually go out of their way to make the postcard look like it's junk mail so that you won't return. So you get the postcard and you just take one glance at it, go, ah, oh, junk mail. And you just lost your right to vote. 
Now, I would think, and I'm guessing you would think, this is just absolutely wrong and should be illegal. But the Supreme Court, in a five to four decision, the five right-wingers on the Supreme Court, just a few months ago said, no, it's just fine, Ohio, go ahead. Knock another couple hundred thousand people off your voting rolls, which Ohio is aggressively doing right now in anticipation of this election. And other states are going, oh, you let Ohio do it? I'm going to do it. The New York Times had a, had a piece uh, by Maggie Astor back in June titled, Seven Ways Alabama Has Made It Harder to Vote. Now, this is not totally unique to Alabama. You'll find this all over the country. But uh, Maggie is writing specifically about what happened in, in, in uh, Alabama. Number one, photo ID. Uh, within 24 hours of the Supreme Court's ruling, now this was not the Ohio ruling, this was the, the ruling back several years ago that said that the Voting Rights Act, which was which was signed in 1965, the Voting Rights Act, which said that the states that have historically practiced Jim Crow kind of discrimination, in other words, refusing to let people vote, the states that had literacy tests, the states that had functionally poll taxes, that they could not make a change to their election laws without it being pre-cleared by the federal government. The Supreme Court blew that up. Within 24 hours of the Supreme Court's ruling, she writes, Alabama announced that in 2014 it would start requiring photo ID. That's number one. Number two, driver's license offices are closed in black areas in Alabama. Number three, officials are pushing for proof of citizenship. Number four, dozens of polling places are closed in areas that are black areas, college towns, and older neighborhoods. Get out the vote group is, is hamstrung. Voter rolls are purged and felony enfranchisement is not publicized. You're listening to the Tom Hartman program. Make no mistake about it. This is a system that the Republican Party has come up with to make it harder for you to vote, which is, means it's all the more important that we all show up. I've been using the Muse EEG neurofeedback headband. I'm not sure that's exactly what they call it, but the website is choosemuse.com. It's a little headband you put on, um, just sets over your ears, sort of like a pair of glasses, only it goes across the forehead, and it actually reads your brain waves, your EEG, and feeds it back to you through a free app on your, on your smartphone into your earphones, uh, into, your, into your ears, as the sounds of weather. And as your brain gets more agitated, the weather gets louder, and as your brain gets calmer and more peaceful and more meditative, the weather gets softer and the waves get softer and you start hearing little birds when you're having really cool brainwave activity that's associated with the way that good meditators do it. It's a meditation instruction tool and meditation is such an incredible thing. It, it you know, helps concentration, focus, lowers blood pressure. I've been using this for about four or five months now and I have noticed in my daily writing, because I've, I've got a 10 book contract right now and I'm writing so much every single day, I used, to, I used to sit down to write and say, okay, I'm going to write for an hour. And half of that hour was spent with distractions. I'd think of this and think of that. And, oh, I need to check my email. Oh, I got to do that. And, and I would constantly distract myself and then eventually come back to it. Since I've started using the Muse, now when these distractions pop up, just like they do in my meditation, I've learned how to, just like in my meditation, say, oh, that's a distraction. I'll let go of that. I'll come back to that later. I'm going to get back to writing. And now... Instead of getting 30 minutes worth of work done in an hour of sitting and writing, I'm getting 50 or 60 minutes of work done in an hour of sitting and writing. It's really extraordinary. You can learn all about it at ChooseMuse, M-U-S-E, ChooseMuse.com. And if you order using the code TOM, T-H-O-M, you get $30 off. So check it out. It's great. ChooseMuse.com. Welcome back. Let's check in with Talk Media News and find out what's going on in the world today. This report brought to you by GoatsForTheOldGoat.com and Ellen Ratner's new book, Loving What You Do. Online with us, the author of Sideswiped, Congressman Bob Ney. Congressman, welcome back to the program. Well, let's start with uh, Iran, if we could, because the sanctions are kicking in today. This is round one. Now, these sanctions will go towards any entity that trades with Iran, dealing in gold, steel, aluminum, coal, any other minerals or, or metals. The oil then, sanctions um, kick in in November, right? Well, no, there's a second round kicking in November. Yes, and, and that will be based on the oil. Right. And there, there are, um, are some probably deals going behind the scenes with Saudi Arabia to make up for what Iran is not going to be able to pump. 
And uh, frankly, Saudi Arabia will gladly do that because it wants uh, Iran in a bad position and would like us actually go to war with Iran. So right. Saudi Arabia will be very happy to open the spigots. Interesting. So to say. Interesting. Um, what what, to say what effect do we expect to see from this first round of sanctions? I mean, is it, my understanding was that, that there's not that many American companies doing business with Iran anyway, principally going to hit European companies, Middle Eastern companies that had opened relations with, with Iran. Um, but I've also heard that, you know, the EU has been looking for ways to protect European companies. Has any of that come to fruition? Well, it's going to because let me just and I don't I haven't seen this uh, really in press reports, but let me tell you what was the victim of the first round here. 200 passenger jets. Uh, that contract has been canceled now. That's one of the first. Uh, was that Airbus things. or Boeing or who? Uh, well, by this, these sanctions will cancel a contract for 200 license for sales of 200 passenger jets that were going to be used uh, in Iran. Again, passenger jets. Iran has right. a horrible problem because originally under the Shah, of course, Boeing uh, sold a lot of the jets and then there weren't parts and even Bush opened up uh, the ability of Iran to get some parts for humanitarian purposes because, uh, you know, jets literally could just fall out of the sky and kill the average Iranian. So this is, I understand it from one report I saw immediately when this came through today, that cancels the, the contract for the license for sale of 200 passenger jets. Wow. So we know that happened. Here's the other dilemma, because you've asked the, the right question. What about everybody that started to do business, whether it was China, Russia, a lot of Europe, started to do business because, you know, we uh, obviously undid the sanctions, as did the U.N., for Iran to comply with the de decrease of their nuclear, you know, abilities and proliferation. Mm. Now, all these companies are sitting there. And so the president, with his new sanctions, just round one, not into the oil yet, is going to cause companies that are doing existing businesses have existing contracts, just like I mentioned with the uh, passenger jets, uh, are going to have a problem because they're going to come under our law, could be sanctioned and, and arrested, uh, tried in you know a criminal uh, court for violation of sanctions and lose their and business so, to lose their ability to do business in and with the United States as well. Right. So exactly. why you know say for example uh, uh, you know some some machine tool company in Germany wants to continue selling machine tools to Iran, uh, but they would also like to be able to continue selling machine tools to the United States. Right. Uh, is it possible for them to spin off another company, make it a completely separate entity? You know, Enron had over 700 different companies and and have that entity buy machine tools from them and sell them to Iran. But they could say this isn't us doing it. This is a separate company. Well, it's dangerous because hmm. President Trump, of course, appoints the secretary of the Treasury and Treasury monitors all these things if they wanted to they could make literally a federal case out of it right. and people could go to trial so do, do companies really want to take that chance but this isn't going to be a one or two isolated cases of, of the passenger jets i just gave you it's just going to be broad and when the oil kicks in it will be it will be massive because again all of these were undone in a joint cooperation between the United States and Europe and right. Russia and China. Bob, you know well, Iran better than anybody I know. Yeah. You speak Farsi. You've been there. You've worked there. You've lived there. Um, is it possible that when the that I, I think it's unlikely with these sanctions and, and I'd like to get your opinion on that. But when the oil sanctions kick in in November, is it possible that at that point Iran closes the Straits of Hormuz? The United States says, OK, that's it. And we go to war with Iran, Saudi Arabia and Israel get in the act. And then Russia gets in on the act on behalf of Iran, and suddenly we're in World War III. Oh, I, I think that it's a powder keg. And if Iran does react because its economy is going to tank and it will have you know severe problems, uh, if Iran reacts with the Strait of Hormuz, which is a narrow strait, with the massive amount of the world's oil supply going, you know how we would love to go to war over oil. And I think it, it could be a, a major confrontation, and Saudi Arabia would love it. Of course, they won't uh, put any, any of their people in jeopardy. We would do that, and Saudi Arabia knows that. We would become their, you know, their puppet in this situation. I think it's a powder keg. It has to be watched and has to be taken serious. The other thing here is this, having lived in Iran and and with a couple of presidents, Clinton and Bush, you know, and uh, some Democratic members, we uh, provided the ability to try to do back-channel talks when the White House 
both administrations asked us to for mutual needs that both countries have, uh, there was at least a give and take. Look, the clerics are the clerics. They're not good. They don't treat the people right. But then there's progressives and moderates like Rouhani and others over there. And here's the bottom line, Tom. If the Trump administration thinks that they're going to topple or change that government by doing this, all they are doing is allowing the clerics who are living in the 12th century to be able to say, you see, you see what America's doing to you. We're not doing it. They're doing it. Right. We told you so. Right. So this does nothing to have regime change over there. In fact, it sets us back uh, and it sets the Iranian people back, who the vast majority like us, and the vast majority want to change in their country. Right. I mean, not long ago, they were in the streets protesting their government uh, over there, and now their government's going to be able to, again, blame every single thing right. on uh, on Trump and the United States. Now they'll be in the streets protesting us. Amazing. Sure. Thanks for the yeah. filling us all in on, on Iran. I mean, that that's a, you know, to, to paraphrase a Joe Biden, a BFD. Bob Ney, uh, author of Sideswipe. Thanks a lot, Bob. Thank you. Have a great afternoon. Paul Levy's going to drop by. We're going to be talking about quantum physics, science, and spirituality. Let's take a break from Donald Trump for five or ten minutes here. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Tom Hartman here with you, and in the studio with me, I'm really pleased to have Paul Levy. He is the author of, most recently, The Quantum Revelation, A Radical Synthesis of Science and Spirituality. Sting, the musician, said the quantum revelation is mind-blowing. Paul, welcome to the program. Glad to have you here with us. So, quantum physics, uh, you you say this is the, the... the greatest, the most profound scientific discovery in the history of the human race. Right. And this is the thing, or a thing, that could save humanity? Yeah, yeah, that's that's very true. And it's not just my opinion that it's the greatest discovery in all of history in the realm of science. I mean, that's that's beyond debate. What What is up for debate is what does it mean? Because it's such a radical discovery and I'm pointing at that it's it's actually when you understand what it's showing us about who we are and mm-hmm. this the whole nature of this reality that it it's actually it's offering us the solution you know in a real way to the world crisis that we're in and that's what my book is about. So the the the, the key concept within quantum physics that that you're hanging this on. Mm-hmm. Is as I recall, is this Heisenberg's uncertainty principle, or the, yeah, that's, the, 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 when you observe something, you right. That's part of it. It's really um, the act of observing. So quantum physics. So you know, quantum physics didn't come out of a void. It came out of what you know the pre pre quantum physics, which was the Newtonian point of view, which basically was was imagining that this world objectively existed and right. that and we it was totally mechanistic. Yeah, totally mechanistic, deterministic, and we were just passively observing it, trying to figure it out. Well, quantum physics came in and basically proved that there is no such that the idea of there being an objective world that that's an illusion. It doesn't even exist. And to even talk about an obje- an objective world is is total nonsense. And so quantum physics actually discovered that the act of observing this world actually influenced in the moment, the very world that we observe, that the act of observation, the observer and the object observed were all interconnected parts of one quantum system. Yeah, there was there was a debate about um, the spiritual nature of reality back in the Mm -hmm. 18th century, as I recall, Dr. Samuel Johnson Mm -hmm. said, you know, they they got into this debate and and uh, the, the question was asked to him, how do you refute the idea of an objective uh, physical reality? And he said, I refute it thus. And he kicked a stone and hurt his foot. I mean, right. how, how do you react to that? Right. Well, the thing is, is that um, it's not to say that there's nothing out there. What quantum physics is pointing at is that it doesn't exist objectively separate from us in the way that we've been trained to imagine so this this phenomena of um, the observer effect is the doorway that really opens up um, what I'm pointing at that quantum physics is actually offering humanity because it's pointing at that the act of observation is creative and and that's always the case 24/7 but but our species is enacting that unconsciously and because it's unconscious, then it's it's actually the way that that it'll manifest in our world, 
will not be serving us, will actually be harming us, and that's actually playing out both individually and collectively so in the like body a giant politic. Feedback loop. Yeah, yeah, it's an instantaneous feedback loop. Yeah. And so the point is, is that what quantum physics is pointing at, I mean, you know, in a real simple way, is that this, this reality is, <clears throat> it's exactly as if it's a collective shared dream that we're all dreaming up into materialization. But because it's a dream <clears throat> in a certain way, if we hold a particular viewpoint, then <clears throat> this, this dreamlike reality will instantaneously reflect back that seeming viewpoint as being seemingly objective. So then we have the evidence to prove to ourselves that our perspective is actually correct, that we're seeing what's objective reality. So we become more entrenched in that viewpoint. It's a feedback loop. This sounds very esoteric. How, can well, we, we translate this into kind of a practical reality? How, how yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. when, when, when you're sure. struggling with Donald Trump as president or whatever? I mean, right, right. Well, I, the from thing, a quantum physics point of view, from the quantum physics point of view like is that, okay, well, if, if what quantum physics is saying is true, and it's, it's never been proven the slightest bit to have any inaccuracy whatsoever, then from that point of view, what we're experiencing now is a mass shared dream, which is to say that Donald Trump, that we've dreamed him up, all of us collectively have dreamed up himself included. Trump, himself, himself included, as a dream character who's embodying a particular quality. Like for me, maybe he's embodying ignorance or it's just madness or narcissism. But if I'm seeing him as separate, then that you see the whole thing about quantum physics is that it's pointing out that there's no separation in this universe, that everything is seamlessly interconnected with everything else. That includes Donald Trump. So he's a dream character. He's a reflection of that part of me. And then as soon as I see that, then all of a sudden I'm not like reacting to him as if he's separate, which then, you know, I become conditioned by my reactions and actually by, by having that unconscious, you know, reaction, I'm so, actually feeding the, the negative energy in the field. Oh, no, I got it. And, yeah, and, yeah. And, and this is kind of the struggle for, for people who understand quantum physics and, and, and try to translate that into an epistemology essentially, you know, for lack of better description, a religious system, you know, it's sometimes referred to as a new age system or something like that. Right. That, oh, it's just all a dream or Hinduism, actually. I mean, this is 6,000 years old. It's, this is at the core of Hinduism, in fact. Right. But, but that it's all a dream. And then, again, we constantly come up against that Samuel Johnson problem. You know, I'm being waterboarded. How do I tell myself this is just a dream? You know, or... Right. And like it, I was saying, it's not like that there's that that's not happening if it's waterboarding or kicking his foot on a stone and there's pain. But the whole point is, is that our experience is actually not, not objective mm. in the sense that, you see... What quantum physics has proven beyond a shadow of a doubt that there's nothing objective outside of us, that we're part of the universe that we're observing, and the act of observing actually influences but the even, very universe. Even that, even that implies that each one of us is a separate consciousness. I well, mean, isn't, isn't our consciousness part of the great consciousness, and isn't the great consciousness really the only thing that exists? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So in other words, we're actually these little, as these, these, these microcosmic, fractals, we're, we're interconnected with the macrocosm. So we're not separate from the whole field. So what that means is that with, when any of us has an expansion of consciousness, that immediately gets deposited in the collective unconscious of our species. And so the idea, like, you know, to, um, what quantum physics is really getting at is that we're actually interconnected with the universe and with each other, that we depend on each other, that we're interdependent. And that cuts through the whole idea of separation because if you see there's nothing objective out there, and that's what quantum physics is showing, what happened to the subject? If there's no object to have relationship to, what happens to us as subjects? So it puts into question, who are we? And that's where quantum physics becomes this sort of a path of having to do with, you know, spirit, with spirituality. Yeah. Back 40 years ago in San Francisco, there was this guy, Sufi Sam, who was kind of a well-known Sufi master in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. And he had this theory that uh, when we die, the you know we we uh, we go into the great goulash pot you know mm -hmm, the great mm -hmm. soup pot and uh, we get all chopped up into a million little pieces and it just become part of the soup 
And every time somebody is born, this is a reincarnation story, which is not what we're talking about here, but right. just for illustration purposes. When we're born, the great soup maker puts a ladle into the soup and pours it into the new body. And so our obligation as we go through our lives, and this is where I think it kind of meshes with what you're saying, mm-hmm. is to brighten the soup, to lighten the soup, to, to, yeah, yeah, to, yeah. to heal the soup, to help the soup. Right. Well, you know, what quantum physics is saying, because we're interconnected any one of us having a moment of expanded awareness or owning our shadow or seeing the dreamlike nature, that expansion of consciousness gets deposited in, in the non-local field of the universe. And immediately there's more light in the universe when any any of us begins to wake up. And, and not only that, we might be the actual us doing that, us having that, that, that moment of expanding consciousness could be the very catalytic sort of moment that will precipitate a global awakening in the entire species. I mean, that's a that possibility. Would be amazing. This is the Tom Hartman Program. The, the book is The Quantum Revelation. Paul Levy is the author. Thanks a lot. Paul. Yeah, yeah, totally. What a day. I think the, the crazier Donald Trump is, the crazier we all get, right? Anyhow, don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. Get out there, get active, tag. You're it. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 